Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Try to do, by God's grace, the ordo salutis, as uh, Eric said, in 25 minutes or less, okay? Uh, And so... Probably won't be able to cover everything. You know, theologians sometimes talk about the order of salvation, uh, the order of things that must happen for somebody to be fully reconciled with God. And this is controversial. It's complicated. It's confusing at times. Um, And we need to be gracious when we talk about it. I heard Sinclair Ferguson one time speaking at a conference, and he was specifically talking about John Wesley, who, when it comes to things like this, believes something different than a typical Reformed Presbyterian. And Sinclair Ferguson said, in his nice Scottish accent, we we have to distinguish between the washed heart and the confused head. And the point of that is, there are a lot of really strong, committed, devout, committed Christians who don't agree with everything that we're going to teach tonight. Okay, I'm going to try to teach my best understanding of the Bible, certainly from a Reformed perspective. Um, but we don't need to be uh, uh, Reformed and mad about it. And sometimes you come across people like that, and that's not a good way to be. We should be Reformed and gracious about it. So we're going to look at one passage primarily, although we'll refer to different verses. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Romans chapter 8. Because Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30 is the place in the Bible uh, that gets the most of this content packed into the kind of shortest amount of time. So maybe this will be helpful to say by way of introduction. The best way to kind of think about this is three different acts. And by an act, I mean something that happens in an instant, blink of the eye. And then two different processes. Uh, And the process last considerable amount of time, uh, maybe just a few moments or maybe years, decades even. Okay, so the first act would be foreknowledge and predestination that happened in eternity past. Now, some of the words even that I'm going to use might not show up on this handout uh, that Eric has given out. So, for example, his starts at the bottom with election. I might mention election, but when you read Romans chapter 8, it doesn't use that word election. The Bible uses lots of different words sometimes to refer to the same concept. But let's just look at this passage first and then we'll dive in. Romans chapter 8 starting in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to His purpose. Maybe just underline the word there, called. For those whom He foreknew, maybe underline that, He also predestined, maybe underline that, to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, underline, He also called, underline, and those whom He called, you can underline that again, He also justified, underline, and those whom He justified, underline, He also glorified, and then underline that. And sometimes people would refer to the unbroken chain of salvation. It starts with an act in eternity past, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He foreknew us. What does that mean? He set His love upon us. Now some people will try to say that what this really means is, no, 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 God looked down the corridor of time and He saw the people in the future that would trust Him, that would believe in Him, and so then God chose those people. That doesn't work for numerous reasons. Okay, One is, in the Bible, the word know means more than just knowledge, right? I mean, uh, Genesis chapter 4 says Adam knew his wife and she got pregnant. It was an intimate type of loving knowledge. 
Jesus, do you remember in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, when He says to those who think they're true believers and they are, He says, I never knew you. It doesn't mean Jesus was ignorant of their existence, but He had never had a saving relationship with them. So foreknowledge is to, for God to choose someone to set His love upon that person in a saving way. And then predestination is for God to say, because I've chosen you, I plan to save you. I have a plan for you. And when God predestines something, when God destines somebody, it's definitely going to happen. Now let me just tell a little piece of my story here because I don't know where all of you are coming in. I grew up in a very devout, committed, Baptist home and church, but we were not Reformed. And we weren't like anti-Reformed, honestly. I mean, it's still amazing to me. I grew up reading the Bible all the time, going to church, being in Bible studies, but I have no knowledge of ever hearing about predestination, though it's in the Bible, until my senior year in high school, and I heard somebody mention predestination or election. And, and I said, what does that mean? They said, well, you know, some people believe that God chooses people who are going to be saved before it ever happens. But that can't be true because then why would God have us evangelized? I was like, yeah, that sounds dumb to me. That was it. Case closed. First time I heard of it and rejected it. And then I come to Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama, and I get involved in this ministry called Campus Outreach. It was by far the most evangelistic ministry on Sanford's campus at that time. But as I got to know these people who were sharing their faith more than anybody, including myself, they all believed in predestination. So I went on this thing called Beach Project with them, and I remember talking to one of the student leaders. Because everybody, and I was like, do you believe in predestination? He had a great answer. I think he knew kind of how antagonistic I was. And he just said, I think the Bible makes a great case for it. All he said. And that really was like a little rock that stuck in my shoe because I, I said, you know, the word is in the Bible. And I would say, somebody said, do you believe the whole Bible? I'd say, of course I believe the whole Bible. Well, then I had to believe in predestination. The question just became, what did I believe in about predestination? Later on that same summer beach project, I had a conversation with a staff guy. Uh, and he said, Olin, do you believe that all people before they're a Christian are dead in their sins? I said, absolutely, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, and he said, okay, do you believe that uh, somebody that's dead in their sins can do any spiritually good works? Absolutely not. That's what it means to be dead in your sins. Well, do you believe that choosing to trust in Christ for salvation is a good work? I said, yes, I do, and I see where you're going, and I still don't believe it. Okay? And I kind of pushed back. But I was, I was, I was kind of caught and I had to study and I had to wrestle. It was a two-year process before I kind of fully, by God's grace, came to believe this. But the main reason we can't say that God looks down the uh, you know, uh, corridor of time and says, well, who's going to trust in me? Is nobody would trust in him because we're all dead in our sins. And just a side note, okay, because well, I may not be able to get to say everything tonight that I wanted to say. Let me just say this. If you're, if you're still wrestling with some of this... Once you really fully intellectually grasp onto total depravity, everything else will eventually fall into place if you keep studying the Bible and praying and you're logically consistent. You know, the whole TULIP analogy, okay, which I'm not going to acronym, I'm not going to use tonight, but the, it all ultimately depends on the T. Once you believe in the T, you keep praying, you keep studying the Bible, and you try to be logically consistent, you will eventually believe in the rest of it. Okay. Um, J.I. Packer, in his book, Evangelism and Sovereignty of God, says all Christians really believe this whether they admit it or not. And he says, I'll tell you two ways they believe this. One is, when you thank God, you thank God. Thank you for saving me, God. You know in your heart it was all God. And when you pray for other people to be saved, you're praying that God would save them. Okay? 
Tim Keller said this, and this was so helpful. He said, rejecting election causes more problems than it solves. Are there intellectual problems with believing in predestination? Yes. Okay? There are mysteries that we don't fully understand about God. But rejecting it causes more intellectual problems. Does that make sense? Okay. Here's the old Scots confession. Okay? The same eternal God and Father who by grace alone chose us in His Son, Christ Jesus, before the foundation of the world was laid. Okay. So, that's the first act. And then comes a process. A process. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Matthew chapter 22. We're just going to look here very briefly. Keep your finger in Romans, Matthew chapter 22. The process that comes after this is what we would call general calling. A general calling. Matthew chapter 22, and let's start in verse 9. It's in the middle of one of Jesus' parables. We're not going to read the whole thing. Matthew chapter 22, verse 9. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king, who obviously represents God in this parable, came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen." The general call, this is what we're doing tonight. Whether it's me going to a meeting at UAB to speak to a crowd, or you going one-on-one to the Galleria to talk to a random person over a Diet Coke. As you talk to people about sin, righteousness, judgment, Jesus, life, death, resurrection, that's the general call going out to everybody. Charles Spurgeon said the elect don't have a yellow stripe down their back. So we should just preach the gospel to everyone. Okay, the general call. And there will be some people, like the man in this parable, at times that seem like they really respond to the call of the gospel. And then at some point they'll fall away, like Judas. Because River Barker used to say, faith that fizzles before the finish was false from the first. It's not that they lost their salvation. It's that they never really had it. Okay, um, So, Westminster Confession of Faith. Listen to this. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Did you get that last phrase? There's nothing that somebody dead in their sins can even do to get ready to understand and receive the gospel. But we're supposed to still go out and be sharing generally with people. And trusting, though, that the Holy Spirit can work to soften some, to draw some, and to move us into the next process. Okay, so the first act is in eternity past. Foreknowledge, predestination, election. Then there's a process, general calling. We don't know how long it might take. Somebody might sit under the preaching of the gospel for 80 years under the general call without ever being converted. But then the next act is what we would call conversion. Okay, conversion. Go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one because a lot of things actually happen in conversion. They happen instantaneously in the blink of an eye. And yet, the order is really important. And the first thing is this, effectual calling. Or sometimes you could call this regeneration. But the idea is that when God finally calls you, when He says 
to you. I want you to be saved. Nobody resists that call. That's irresistible grace. Right? When God decides to summon somebody, when He said, Hey, Adam and Eve, I want to talk to you. It didn't matter they were trying to run and hide. They were going to have a conversation with God whether they liked it or not. Okay? Let me just read again the old Scots Confession. The rebirth is wrought by the power of the Holy Spirit, creating in the hearts of God's chosen ones an assured faith in the promise of God revealed to us in His Word, giving power to as many as believe in Him to be the sons of God. Here's the second Helvetic confession. At the same time, we recognize that God can illuminate whom and when He will, even without the external ministry, for that is in His power. Listen, usually how does God awaken people, regenerate people? It's through the preaching of the Word. Again, whether that's a one-on-one preaching at a coffee shop, or that's somebody preaching at a conference to 2,000. But God, if He wants to, He's so powerful, He can just raise somebody from the dead whenever He wanted to. Seems like that's what he did to baby John the Baptist even in the womb of his mama. He didn't even have a brain fully functioning enough to understand the gospel message. And God just said, I'll regenerate him right now. That's how it works. Now, when somebody is effectually called, regenerated, made new, the very first decision that they make is faith and repentance. This is where their active, real, morally responsible will comes into play. They make a choice. But faith comes after regeneration. Right? This is John 3. You must be born again before you can even see the kingdom of God to trust in it. New birth happens first. Okay? Um, but even that's a gift. We won't take time to look at the verses. I think you probably know them. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 9, right? Even the faith is a gift. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, Paul tells Timothy, pray that God might grant people the gift of repentance. If anybody ever does have true saving faith, true saving repentance, it's because God granted it to them. Okay? Um, here's the Heidelberg uh, answer number 21. True faith is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit. Again, it's a supernatural work. You hear all, all these confessions talking about something created in me by the Holy Spirit. Then what happens? Justification. Right? In response to our faith, God says, I declare you righteous. Here's the way John Stott says it. I love this. John Stott says, God made Jesus sinful with our sin on the cross. And now, by faith, He makes us righteous with Christ's righteousness. That's justification. Then adoption happens, right? It's not just that we're declared legally righteous, but we're left as an orphan in the world. God says, no, I adopt you into my family. That all happens at the same time. Okay, so... The first act, foreknowledge, predestination, election. Then this long process of general calling. Who knows how long it lasts. And then this instantaneous second act, which has effectual calling, regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, adoption. It all happens instantaneously. Okay? And now another long process. I mean, if you're kind of trying to mentally see this, there's a dot, a long line, a dot, and now another long line. And what is this? Sanctification and the perseverance of the saints. And it's this long, slow, painful process of God making us holy. Okay? The word sanctification is not specifically mentioned in Romans 8, but the concept certainly is. Look at verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's sanctification. And just this is a side note, because you may run across this sometime in your own Bible study. Sanctify is one of those words that's used in two different ways in the Bible. 
at least two different ways. Sometimes it can refer to you've been sanctified as kind of a past done deal set apart, and, and theologians will call that definitive sanctification. And it's just another word for salvation. Okay? But then the way that we typically use it is this long, slow, painful, almost imperceptible process at times, two steps forward, one step back, of becoming conformed to the image of Christ. Let me just give you a helpful illustration. When my kids were little, we did what probably a lot of you have done with your kids. You know, in the pantry door with the ruler, you measure their height, right? And my daughter, especially when she was little, we would typically do that on her birthday. And she would be so excited to see the growth that she'd had from one year to the next. The day after her birthday was always kind of hilarious for about two or three years because she would run downstairs and she called it in her little words, inch me, daddy, inch me. And she'd say, daddy, inch me again, inch me. And I'd say, baby, you're not, you're not going to see any progress in 24 hours. I'm not growing anymore? Well, no, no, you're growing. But it's just so slow, you're not going to be able to tell. And it's the same thing in your Christian life. If you're every day saying, have I gotten more godly in the last 24 hours? You're probably going to be depressed and end up in the loony bin. All right? But if maybe once a year on your birthday you look back, there ought to be some progress in the faith. It's slow, it's painful, and again, we're very involved in this process. It's a work with conjunction between us and the Holy Spirit, right? Philippians 2, 12 and 13, God has worked in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. We have to work out that salvation into our life. Okay? So it's sanctification. Long process. And then how does this all end? It ends with glorification. Now, some people, when they look at Romans chapter 8, verse 30, they say, it seems like justification should have been in there. Like, why did it get left out? F.F. Bruce has a great quote on this. He says, sanctification is glory begun. Glorification is sanctification completed. Right? It, it, it's the first... Sanctification in this lifetime is like the first little shoot of a root of a new beautiful flower. But you don't get to see the flower in full bloom until you see Jesus face to face. Whether that happens through death or through return of Christ. And then that's another... That's the third dot. Instantaneous glorification. Now let me try to make just a few points by way of application. Okay? Um, and let me give an illustration because, again, this can, this can seem sometimes counterintuitive to how we even experienced our own salvation, right? You can go, well, I was reading, I was thinking, I was processing. It felt like I made a rational decision to trust in Jesus. Well, imagine this. This is an illustration that's helped me a ton. Imagine that you were a lifeguard standing on the side of a river that had a gigantic waterfall like Niagara Falls. And there was some boat upstream and the boat crashed and everybody on the boat was dead. And now you can see their dead bodies floating about to go over Niagara Falls and be lost forever. And you're thinking, the family probably wants these bodies. I want to try to save them. So you're throwing a rope. And just let's say there's one particular dead body floating on the river. You're throwing the rope at the dead man saying, be saved. Grab a hold of the rope and I'll pull you in. What kind of response is he going to have? None, because he's dead. But imagine if you had some kind of super-powered rope that had like an electrical shock in it that was similar to what doctors use in the hospital sometimes to revive people. And you could throw that rope. And when it hit the person, it instantly brought them back to life. And you said, grab the rope. What would be their most logical response as soon as the rope hit them? To grab a hold of the rope. And you pull them in. And that's a great picture that when we go out speaking the word, sometimes the Holy Spirit decides to anoint our words 
as we quote the scriptures, we share our testimonies, we talk about Christ, and instantaneously in that moment give person new life, they're regenerated. And their first most natural response is to trust and believe, repent and obey. Now, maybe the clearest biblical example of this is, do you remember the story in John chapter 11 of Lazarus? Just think about this for a second. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Did Lazarus in his dead body lay in the tomb and think, ah, do I really want to get up or not? No, no. There was something so supernaturally powerful in the Lord Jesus' voice that when he called him, it made Lazarus alive whether he wanted to be alive or not. And then what was the most natural response was for him to stand up and walk out of the cave. In the very same way, for all of us that are in Christ, how'd that happen? At some point in our life, the Lord Jesus, by His Spirit, spoke into our heart and said, Have faith. Right? I mean, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of Christ. So, there can be no pride and arrogance. There should be no pride and arrogance for a Christian to look down on, you stupid atheist, you stupid Buddhist, you stupid Muslim. Because it's like, hey, the only way I got in is God just had mercy on me. I'm still kind of shocked about it. And also, there should be no hopelessness. This one great point that Tim Keller makes. He says, there's no such thing as a hopeless case. You might have somebody in your life that you've been sharing the gospel with for 60 years, and they just might seem hard and angry and distant and rebellious. Whenever God wants to, He can make them alive. Keep praying. Don't give up hope. Keep sharing the gospel. Now, let me say one last thought by way of conclusion. You know, why in this passage in Romans 8 that I chose to look at, it talks about foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, justification, glorification. It doesn't talk about any of our part. It doesn't talk about the general call part where we're supposed to be out there sharing the gospel. It doesn't even talk about the sanctifying part where we're supposed to work along with God to grow up. It doesn't talk about faith and repentance. Why does it just talk about all the parts that God does all by Himself? Because the main goal of Romans chapter 8, which most theologians would say is the greatest chapter in the whole Bible, is security for the Christian. It starts with, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and it ends with, there's no separation from Christ. So, for all of us that have put our faith in Christ, imperfectly so, but genuinely and sincerely, this should be an incredible ground of hope and salvation that we will persevere that we will be glorified he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion Jesus said no one can come to me except those that have been given to me by the father but he also said I don't lose one of them and I will raise them up on the last day he chose us he loved us he predestined us he came to earth, and I'll say this and I'll be done. When Jesus lived his perfect life as a substitute, when Jesus went to the cross as a substitute, it was not as a generic substitute to make salvation possible. It was particular redemption. He, died, he lived, he died, and he rose for specific people that when he rose from the grave, it was a done deal. You were going to be saved. That's how powerful his plan and his salvation is. Lord Jesus, we love you. We are grateful. I pray for everybody hearing this. Make us more humbled. 
that we had and still in some sense have nothing to do with our salvation. But that you have everything to do with it. Fill us full of awe and joy and hope and confidence and assurance. And also, would you fill us full of a boldness and a winsomeness and going and sharing the gospel with others and praying for others. And Lord, give us fruit, not for our name's sake, but for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org.